Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I talked to Doug Henwood, Marxist, journalist, host of Behind the News podcast and author of many books, including my personal favourite, the classic Wall Street, How It Works and For Whom. We discuss Biden's stimulus package, his tax hikes and what's been going on in US stock markets, as well as how workers can organise in the post-COVID economy. Thanks so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. As always, a big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Doug Henwood on Biden's infrastructure plan. Hello, Doug Henwood, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm good, and thanks for having me. Um, I hope we can uh, (laughs) win that world. (laughs) So do I. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we're obviously going to be talking mainly about the imperial core, uh, the imperial hegemon of the world economy, the United States, where you are right now, I believe. (laughs) Yes. Well, on an island off the coast of America, as uh, um, somebody used to say. So, yeah, I mean, the first thing I guess I want to talk about is uh, is Biden. I was doing an interview the other day on just kind of a you know fairly mainstream radio station in the in the UK. And um, I was asked, do you think that the move that Biden has done in the US, which is to run from the center and then shift dramatically to the left upon in office is something that will be available to the Labour Party? And I was a bit stunned because whilst Biden has obviously done, you know, made some pretty pretty good moves. I wouldn't describe his stimulus package as a kind of, you know, resounding socialist agenda, but clearly he's kind of picked up all the right headlines. So what are your what are your views on this? Is this kind of, you know, socialism by the the US state? <laughs> well, I just before we start, um I would want to say that his foreign policy is worse than Trump's and is actually turning out worse than I expected. So mm-hmm. be- uh, and that's just absolutely terrible. Um, considering, you know, I guess he's continuing an old tradition of Democratic Party, you know, imperialism, the CIA, NATO, all these things were, <laughs> many of our wars uh, were uh, prosecuted under Democrats, founded by the Democrats. So, you know, maybe he's going back to that old tradition. But, you know, that aside, the domestic policy so far has been just much better than I expected. I certainly didn't expect much from Biden. He seemed like uh, the worst kind of centrist hack. Um, completely uninspired uh, character. And, you know, what he's proposed so far by the context of American politics, which is, you know, we always have to keep that in mind. The context of American politics is pretty dismal. Uh, they're just far better. I mean, the uh, the uh, American Rescue Act, which is a grandiose name, but there's a lot of really good stuff in that. Uh, the infrastructure bill, again, you know, is, it could be better. There could be much better stuff on climate in there, but it's certainly better than anything I expected. And so far, uh, better than anything that um, Obama did, really. Uh, and now, you know, along that, we have Janet Yellen, Secretary of the Treasury, talking about how climate and systemic racism will be the center of everything mm. the Treasury Department does. I, I can't imagine any previous Treasury Secretary anything, saying anything remotely like that. So, you know, 
one had low expectations and he's uh, exceeding them so far. I don't know whether he'll continue, but uh, certainly, as they say on Wall Street, coming in better than expected. Mm. I'm wondering why you think this is. Is this to do with pressure from social movements, the labor movement, the left? Or is this just a recognition that actually American capitalism after, you know, what has it been like four decades of stagnant wages and climate breakdown needs to be reformed? I think it's a combination of things. I certainly don't think it's Biden. You know, I think, as I said uh, uh, the other day yeah. on the social media, it's the time, not him. Um, but that the time, there are two aspects of that time. One is you know, just the, the dire situation we've been in, uh, the, the COVID recession, the COVID crisis, just exposed so much about what is wrong with this society. Obviously, the, the healthcare system is a disaster, but even, you know, Stepping out a bit from that, the public health infrastructure, the allocation of hospital resources, all these things have just been revealed to be so profoundly you know, unequal, profoundly broken. But then the absolute income insecurity of such a large portion of the population, the insecure employment, the people are just so close to homelessness in this country. And the crisis just brought all that stuff out. And then, you know, we th- if we think about longer-term issues, longer-term health issues, but also the climate crisis, which will come with many, many health crises along with it, then, you know, the situation just became very clear that something was really breaking here and we needed to do something about it. Even, you know, fairly centrist people have come around to this point of view, but also, you know, the Sanders campaign, the growth of DSA, the growth in the number of fairly left-wing elected officials. I know these are not, you know, revolutionary socialists, but by the standards Mm -hmm. of American politics, to have um, five or so self-identified social Democrats in Congress, to have a a, a socialist caucus in the New York State Legislature, uh, about a tenth of the Chicago City Council on DSA members. Something is really changing uh, on that level as well. So um, I think the combination of the times, the ripening of the uh, uh, instability and polarization of 40 years of neoliberalism, the obviousness of the climate crisis, plus that, uh, that change in, in, in public thinking, the Sanders campaign uh, and all of the, uh, the, the left resurgence that has come with it really has made a difference. And I think he's responding to that. One big piece of news that we've seen today has been Janet Yellen, as you mentioned, who's you know been saying some fairly kind of you know social democratic, shall we say, stuff. She's now calling for a global minimum corporate tax rate, um, and this comes in the wake of Biden reversing Trump's tax cuts and some politicians or the conservatives in the UK saying that they want to increase the corporate tax rate. Alongside, it's worth remembering some really really big giveaways in terms of. Um, allowances for uh, for capital investment, which, you know, effectively some businesses will just use to avoid the tax altogether. So there's, but, but, you know, the big thing has been, a, there's been a rhetorical shift clearly on corporation tax, and that may or may not be followed up with some genuine form of action on, you know, base erosion, profit shifting, these sorts of things. How likely do you think that this kind of international cooperation under US leadership on corporation tax is uh, is, is to happen? Well, I have my doubts. You know, obviously, there are whole countries that uh, whose, whose economic model depends upon yeah. tax shelters. I'm sure the Irish will not be happy to hear about this sort of thing, unless you know they actually beef up their their um, 
the appeal of their tax shelters in some ways and evade any kind of global compact. But you know, we've seen this coming out of the OECD over the last few years. And the OECD is hardly a Bolshevik yeah. operation. But they've been talking uh, for the last several years about some kind of compact to uh, reduce tax avoidance, to uh, reduce the tax shelter, what, trillions of dollars still sheltered offshore. And uh, they're extremely low tax rates that uh, corporations have been paying around the world. But just looking at the U.S. record, if you look at the national income accounts and compare what companies have been paying in taxes to what the national income accountants estimate as their actual profits, not what they report to the tax authorities, but correcting some for the distortions imposed by all the, the tax breaks that they get. They're paying the lowest share of their profits in taxes since the beginning of the national income counts in the U.S. Uh, there was a period in the early 1930s during the Great Depression where corporate America lost money on the whole. But ever since, they got out of that. Back in the 1950s, we were talking about tax rates of 40 to 50% rate, uh, 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 effective tax rates, that is, what they actually paid relative to their income, mm. was in the 40 to 50% range. That's been declining almost in a straight line to uh, where the last few years, especially with the, the latest the round of Trump tax cuts in 2017, it's down below 20%. So uh, if you just look at getting them back to what they paid even 10 years ago, would produce hundreds of billions of dollars of revenue. And, you know, they certainly can't complain about um, being overtaxed. And, and, you know, this, this, the cuts in the corporate tax cuts are supposed to produce a gusher of capital investment. That didn't happen. Hmm. All they did was give the money to their shareholders. So, yeah, I, I think the, the time is ripe for that. Um, it's going to take an awful lot to get international cooperation on that. But I would imagine that some of the bigger foreign economies would be happy to go along. Everybody needs revenue these days. And uh, I, I would think at this point, um, you know, the corporate uh, anti-tax lobby um, is extremely unpopular. Mm. I mean, another element of this has been the fact that, you know, the Trump tax cuts were really, if you if, you know look underneath the, the bonnet of it, clearly geared towards allowing companies to undertake stock market manipulation by you know, boosting dividend payments, buying back their own shares at the same time as you'd had this huge injection of capital into financial markets by the Federal Reserve. Before the, the COVID crisis, we'd had the longest bull run in history. And now we have uh, extraordinary um, levels of, of confidence in particular stocks in, uh, in the US, particularly tech stocks. And clearly, the only way to deal with the kind of inequality that these processes have engendered is some sort of wealth tax. Do you think that there's likely to be any movement on that from Biden? That seems extremely unlikely. Uh, mm. <laughs> I, I think capital would fight to the death over that one. I, I think they're going to have a harder time resisting modest increases in the corporate tax rate. Some of the conservative Democrats are, are going to be hard to pull along. Certainly the entire Republican Party will be against any increases in um, corporate taxes, but it's going to, there are a few Democrats uh, who are making noises. And you know, given the, uh, the makeup of Congress, they really can't afford to lose more than one or two. And certainly they can't afford to lose any in the Senate. So that's, that's going to be a problem. But a wealth tax just seems um, just so, so foreign to American yeah. politics that it's going to be just really, really hard to imagine that actually happening. And then we have to think about what we want to do with the wealth tax. You know, do we want to tax those fortunes out of existence? Or do we just want to have a recurring source of revenue? And you know, you see some um, proposals for very high wealth taxes seem to think that you can 
do that forever. Um, I think we should just tax them out of existence and destroy the uh, the billionaire class through taxation. So that's not going to be a recurring source of revenue. But even I think a modest wealth tax would be really, really hard to get uh, get accomplished in this country. It would be, have to be a very different political configuration, both among the population and also uh, within the government. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about, um, as you said very eloquently, taxing the billionaire class out of existence and some of more of those issues around um, uh, kind of financialization and um, what we've seen in financial markets in the US over the course of the pandemic later. But for now, um, let's talk a little bit more about Biden's um, stimulus packages and particularly this infrastructure bill that you mentioned. Now, as I'm sure anyone who either lives in or has traveled to the US from Europe knows US infrastructure, particularly kind of transport infrastructure, is in a just pretty horrific state. Do you think that Biden's package is going to be able to deal with years of neglect in things like, you know, the railway system in the US? Uh, is this going to go any way to kind of tackling the, the productivity crisis and all the challenges that this um, underinvestment in infrastructure has posed for the US economy? Yeah, you know, we've had essentially close to zero net investment, that is net of depreciation in the public sector now for a couple of decades. So they've barely been keeping up with the rod. Uh, and it's not even clear that mm. they've even been doing that because you walk around this country and just it seems like so much of it is just falling apart. Unless you're in a posh suburb, yeah. everything feels like it's falling apart. So yeah. And $2 trillion, I'm sorry to say, is just a start. Um, it's not going to, uh, you know, it, it mm. certainly will address certain very critical problems. Might do something to improve public transit systems, the electrical grid. You know, Amtrak is talking about expanding its route structure. Or like talking about retrofitting housing to be more climate friendly. Um, they're talking about repairing highways and bridges, but very important qualification is that no new construction, no new highways or bridges, which is a real departure for an infrastructure bill. Mm. And they're also talking more about social stuff, like you know, care for the elderly and disabled. Um, Four hundred billion dollars in the plan. They may actually increase that um, uh, thanks to uh, some some pressure uh, from unions and and, and uh, feminist concern about social reproduction. But yeah, it's just a beginning. Uh, but part of the political problem we face in the country, in this country, when we talk about doing things like that, is that people have such little faith in government that uh, it's almost essential mm. to get started with a package that could produce results that people could see in a reasonably short period of time and say, hey, this is pretty good. Can we have some more of it? Any kind of success that the infrastructure bill can produce would, I think, uh, produce demands for more, especially if it's being paid for by corporate taxes and, and, and taxes on uh, upper income people. The infrastructure bill is quite popular, but as is the uh, the American Rescue Plan. Um, very, very popular. Even Republicans are supporting it. So while a lot of people in Washington have not embraced it fully, uh, it does seem like it does have broad popular acceptance. Sending people $1,400 checks in the mail um, proves to be very popular. And certainly down <laughs> Shockingly. 2000, but you know, it seems like it's a very popular thing. Extending unemployment benefits is a winner. Um, assistance to people who are behind in their uh, rent or mortgage payments. You know, All these things are political winners, and they're hard to argue against. So you, know, you have to have a sourpuss like Mitch McConnell um, you know, growling no, but that's not a majority point of view. So you know, if they play this right, um, then it could begin to turn around a lot of popular opinion about government. Uh, and it's interesting that Biden and the Democrats are actually um, choosing to uh, promote this policy. Obama, Obama never cared much about persuading people. He's very cerebral, um, 
cool guy who thought he was so smart. And if you didn't agree with him, the hell with you. He never worked to get support in Congress. He never worked to get public support. And uh, he never did anything to, to, to support the Democratic Party at the state and local level. Um, and you know, he proved to be a political disaster in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the first stimulus package in 2009 was pretty good, although it was smaller than it should have been. But it was pretty good. But he never said much to say, hey, look what we did. We saved the auto industry. We saved your ass. We saved the world from going down the drain into a Great Depression. Uh, he never took any credit for it. The Biden people are um, very aware that they need to uh, not only um, go big with these packages, but also sell them and remind people that um, they're doing them a, lot, a world of good. Um, they're doing the macro economy a world of good, and they're doing individuals a world of good. That also is very encouraging. I think Biden is a dull character, you know, not, not big in the charisma department, doesn't seem like the brightest fellow in the world, but he does seem to have much more political sense uh, than Obama did. And how do you think the Republicans are going to respond to this? Because Trump obviously talked big about investing and, you know, rebuilding America, but he didn't do that much. And yet even the rhetorical shift seems to have taken us a big way from, you know, the Republicans of the Tea Party moment, which really wasn't that long ago. So how, how do you think the Republicans are going to react to this shift among, in the Democrats? Well, when Trump was always going on about infrastructure, um, it never really got picked up by the rest of the party. He, he was able to browbeat them on certain issues, but um, he never well, – he never he, kind of like Obama in a strange way. He never really wanted to work Congress. He never tried to persuade mm. anybody in Congress to go along with him. There was a running joke, uh, you know, it's going to be infrastructure week next week. You know, it's like – Infrastructure Week was always to be declared, declared to be imminent, but it never actually appeared. I think uh, Trump really never worked uh, very hard at producing it. And his advisors, uh, Peter Navarro and uh, can't recall the other the, the co-author on that, but they they wrote a paper during the 2016 campaign and what they wanted for an infrastructure plan, and it was just all like basically handed over to private equity. Um, it was it was a joke. Uh, huh. So Trump's actual plans, insofar as he had any, were not something that was going to not not going to persuade a whole lot of people, uh, wouldn't have provided a lot of benefit. Whereas, you know, spending a lot of money on repairing things that are falling apart um, and doing it very visibly and prominently, um, that, that could prove to be more popular. But I think the Republicans are just going to say, no, they don't want it. They want, they want Biden to fail politically, but they also mm. want, don't want anything that will um, increase the prestige of the public sector or will step on the prerogatives of private business and uh, they certainly don't want to see anything like a corporate tax increase. So they're going to do their best to oppose it, despite the fact that it's quite popular. And so I, it's funny to see some people on the left saying that the, the Democrats are going to get creamed in uh, the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, I know if the Republicans um, keep uh, being this obstructionist uh, and uh, these uh, the money flows from the, the Rescue Act, if we start getting some infrastructure money flowing, I don't know. It could be... Um, they, they, it could be a political winner as well as an economic winner. Well, I mean, the Dems really are in this sweet spot where you just have, because as you mentioned, the kind of decades of underinvestment in infrastructure, you have this massive, basically kind of undercapacity in the US economy. A lot of the investment that Biden is going to be undertaking will be hugely beneficial to capital, will improve productivity, will increase profits, will potentially kind of, you know, support US uh, manufacturing along with, you know, everything else that's obviously going on with the Fed reduces the value of the dollar and, you know, who knows what's going to happen with, with exports as well. Like you potentially have a set of policies that are going to benefit capital as well as potentially making a difference to people's lives. And 
it's difficult to see how the Republicans could respond to that. No, it's it's a very difficult question. You know, they certainly business welcomes infrastructure spending. There's no question about it. This is not something that they uh, mm. find controversial, but they don't want to pay for it. They want to, you know, yeah. of course, they want somebody else to pay for it, uh, and um, not quite clear who, but just not them. So that that's the problem with uh, the business side of things. Although, you know, I think if they see um, that uh, they're losing one politically, and uh, then they may have no choice but to give in. Uh, and yeah, the Democrats are in a good position, like you say. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the infrastructure problem is so obvious and so real uh, that um, I think the Republicans are going to look like they're, um, they're removed from reality, which is why they're so busy talking about, you know, Dr. Seuss and all these sorts of things and not really <laughs> talking about the, uh, the actual issues facing the economy or the, the you know, the, the polity more broadly. They're just, uh, they're just going to, to flog these divisive issues and uh, attempt to distract from the fact that their, their politics are deeply, deeply unpopular. And I think, you know, you're seeing all these now, the last few weeks, we've seen, what, on something like 40 states uh, have been moving to restrict uh, voting. And wow. I think they are quite aware of the fact that without gerrymandering, uh, voter suppression and the electoral college, they couldn't win. They cannot uh, win just, you know, on the basis of their policies. Uh, and despite all the ways that uh, U.S. politics have been stacked over the last uh, decade or two in their favor, uh, particularly uh, uh, what they've done with uh, redistricting and drawing these custom bizarre districts to elect Republicans at the state level, then uh, without all that, they would be in deep trouble. And I mean, even what you said about, you know, they want this infrastructure spending, but they're not willing to pay for it. Usually you would expect big business to be very much up against corporation tax increases and this level of spending, because not only is it going to impact profits, it's also potentially kind of augmenting the, the power of, of organized labor. But actually, U.S. business has managed to afford to not give the average worker a pay rise since what is it 1979 or something they've done extraordinarily well off the back of the pervasive disempowerment of the labor movement so it does kind of feel as though someone who's able to to basically kind of corral business and say look you put a bit of money into the pot we improve infrastructure and we also keep the labor movement under wraps we reform capitalism at a moment where you know calls for its downfall are becoming more vocal that's only going to benefit you over the long run. It's certainly a more coherent strategy than what the, the right in the UK, for example, is seeking to adopt, which is basically the only way we win is to go back to what Tony Blair said. <laughs> the resurrection of Tony Blair is a pretty depressing idea. Oh, don't even um, get me but, started. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I was really stunned. Yeah, there's this analysis I've seen that um, the reason they are um, now – coming around to these kinds of big spending programs is because labor is so weak and they know that it's not going to lead to an increase yeah. in wage demands and organization. Uh, but what struck me the other week was Biden actually endorsing the unionization attempt at the Amazon warehouse in Alabama. Wow. Uh, he, and he did it in very strong terms. Everybody has the right to join a union. It's the, the none of the employer's business. And, um, you know, if I were an organizer in that campaign, I'd say, I, I think, um, 
people used to say this back in the 30s, you know, the president wants you to join a union. You know, now this is a similar thing. I, I was stunned that he actually said that because I don't recall Obama ever saying anything favorable about unions. Most, yeah. uh, you know, mainstream Democrats don't really, you know, they like their money. They like the, the, uh, the, the human resources they provide to do campaigns, like knocking on doors, getting out the vote sorts of things. But they certainly don't want to... Uh, um, be a subject of the political influence of labor's agenda. Um, so to hear Biden say that was just, I found it absolutely stunning. I don't really quite understand what's going on with that. But he has always presented himself as very union friendly, but I thought that was more of a rhetorical campaign, you know, stance, one of these uh, 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 gestures of uh, cultural allegiance to, uh, you know, Joe Sixpack and that kind of thing. But I don't know. It seems to be more serious. And coming at the present moment when, you know, Amazon is in this fight uh, with um, uh, an organizing campaign, I I was very, very surprised. I hope it actually means something. And I hope it will mean, you know, a more labor friendly kind of uh, policy coming out of the administration. But all these years of reaction, you know, in a lot of those years of reaction, were under Democrats. The Bill Clinton yeah. years were uh, were terrible in a lot of ways. Uh, very anti-labor. Robert Reich, who now is very pro-labor, but uh, back then when he was labor secretary, he said the jury is still out on whether unions are relevant today. Uh, you know that that this is a big change in in the course of twenty years. One other thing that you know, a big hope that was pinned on on Biden in the early days was well, you know, <laughs> the early days, however many months ago now, God, time just feels like it's going so slowly was that he would increase the minimum wage. Um, and this now looks like it's it's stalled. Um, and I'm not 100% sure what's gone on there. Uh, could you kind of give us a bit of background as to why the progress towards the $15 minimum wage has um, been held up? Well, it's a lot of it has to do with the um, absolutely disgusting institution of the Senate. That right. uh, all they, If they lose one or two votes, it's done. So they need every Democrat to go along with it. Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, didn't like it. Uh, Christian Sinema, the uh, the Arizona senator, didn't like it. And so uh, if you have two senators who don't want it, it's not going to happen. Uh, and then I think there's some conservative Democrats in the House who don't really like it either. Um, and some of these people can point to electoral reasons. I live in a conservative district and all that sort of thing, so I can't be for it. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. minimum wage increases are very, very popular. Um, yeah. It's really hard to find uh, any kind of public opinion poll that would uh, argue against a substantial increase in the minimum wage. And most people uh, also want it indexed to inflation. So, that, you know, this is a very popular thing, but I think there are just too many conservative people in Congress, even within the Democratic Party, who oppose the idea. And uh, there are certain industries, of course, that really are opposed to it, uh, the fast food industry, the retail industry. Amazon, weirdly, has come out in favor of increasing the minimum wage, but I think that's just a PR game they're playing. But generally, those kinds of industries, like fast food, retail, low-wage industries, tend in their political contributions, at least, to favor Republicans. So it's it's funny to see conservative Democrats also uh, not getting behind the minimum wage increase. But yeah, it's just this deeply undemocratic structure of the U.S. Congress and especially the U.S. Senate that that killed the minimum wage increase. And with as if you can't get those 50 votes in the Senate, you just don't have it. Mm. I want to talk a bit now about um, some, you mentioned uh, foreign policy, um, I'd like to talk about that and, and trade as well. But before we move on to that, there was some controversy around Biden initially backing down from demands to shut down ICE. I've also seen reports that arrests have gone down since he became president and actually, you know, there's been some kind of progress on the migration agenda. What is actually going on there? 
I really wish I knew. I don't think anybody really mm. knows what's going on there. Um, right. They, they've also been trying to keep the press out, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult problem. I don't know what I would do. Um, you'd have, if you have you know, suddenly thousands of unaccompanied minors showing up uh, on the border, I don't know exactly what you'd do, but I think it would be um, an urgent thing to do to, to make sure they're um, housed and treated humanely and uh, they're not being very comfortably housed right now. Yeah. I don't know what the long-term plan is. Um, and, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, said a couple of weeks ago that this is not really a border crisis. It's an imperialism crisis. Um, it's a climate crisis. I mean, it's just like so much of um, you know, global inequality and um, um, and also, you know, the bitter fruits of U.S. foreign policy for decades, you know, that that's manifesting itself as a border crisis. But this really is a very, very large problem that um, – um, it's it's really hard to figure out how to solve. Uh, of course, no kids uh, and families and refugees should be treated very humanely, and I don't think they're being treated very humanely now. That's really it would seem very urgent to get that done very quickly. But um, uh, the, the broader problem is a, is a is a real tough one, and uh, you know, a lot of the refugee flow is driven by um, you know U.S. intervention um, in in Central and South America for decades and decades. So you know this is. Uh, you know, the chicken's coming home to roost, I guess. Um, on So, okay, foreign policy in general, you said that he, at, the, at the beginning of the interview that he was, you know, basically worse than Trump. Why do you think that is? Is this a kind of going to manifest itself as a kind of flexing of imperial muscle abroad versus Trump's more isolationist agenda, maybe a stepping up of the trade war? What do you think are going to be the most regressive elements of, of Biden's foreign policy over his term? Well, they've been very hostile to Venezuela, Maduro, um, and uh, right. you know the Trump was also, but uh, <laughs> I don't think they weren't competent enough to accomplish a coup. And I think this this is an area where I, I kind of regret the return of uh, competent people to government. Uh, that we may actually have a competent CIA again, because you know the Democrats um, it was their yeah, institution yeah. from the first, and I guess you know uh, they may actually be uh, more successful at uh, deposing Maduro or at least uh, threatening to uh, than, than Trump was. The really worrisome stuff, I think is with China, um, and I, even in the, the sales pitch uh, that Biden is using for the infrastructure bill, part of the reason is to fight the, you know, the growing competitive threat of China. There's a deep anxiety among uh, American elites um, that China is about to surpass us, not about to, but on the way to surpassing the U.S. as the number one you know, king of the hill. And that uh, scares them. I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are afraid that uh, Chinese technical capacity is just getting uh, too strong, and they are increasingly reviewing China as a rival. You know, a decade or two ago, China was your your low wage uh, assembly plant, and now um, they're actually developing their own technology. And uh, American um, executives don't like that idea very much. So there's a real, and then, you know, there's this increasing military tension, political military tension with China uh, in Asia. So all those things together suggest that there are real increasing rivalries with, with China between the U.S. and China. Trump, uh, you know, added to that real underlying tension, just a revolting level of personal disgust and racism. 
he just viscerally doesn't like Chinese people. He mm. viscerally doesn't like uh, uh, people from Latin America. He's just, uh, you know, if you're not from Northern Europe, uh, he doesn't like you. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that was revolting. Um, and um, it certainly inflamed an awful lot of popular um, hostility and violence towards Asians, uh, no doubt about it. Plus, you know, all this hostility about the China virus and all those, those slanders that uh, the Trump people uh, engaged in. And, you know, resulting in a very um, disturbing increase in anti-Asian violence on American streets. But the real political rivalry, strategic rivalry, um, that's not going to go away. And I think it's going to intensify under Biden. And it may be that, like I said, then we have some more competent people in office uh, than the Trump years that may actually get uh, more and more tense uh, with time. And I find that very frightening. I think we need to cooperate with China on mm. so many things, most importantly, climate. You know, we need a really a global approach to climate change. And framing China as our mortal rival is certainly not helping that uh, mission. Let's talk a bit now about what's been going on in, um, in U.S. stock markets and financial markets. Obviously, not that long ago, we had the GameStop saga. You wrote about the absurdity and uselessness, to quote your Jacobin piece, of the stock market. We saw that not only with GameStop, but also with the insane rally we've seen among tech stocks and various different stocks that have benefited from the pandemic over the last year on the back of the longest bull run in history. Much of this is being driven by money creation to the benefit largely of big institutional investors. Do you now think that this model that really has been perfected by successive neoliberal governments of rising asset prices is the kind of fundamental requirement for the the maintenance of U.S. capitalism. It seems like they really painted themselves into a corner. They, you know, they, every time there's a crisis, they flood the system with money, bring interest rates oh. down, uh, and that just creates a bubble, which eventually lays the groundwork for the next crisis. Uh, you know, it's it's not quite visible now, although we had a hedge fund blow up the other day. But uh, I'm sure there's just a whole lot of reckless borrowing going on along with um, you know, that, that free, free money from the Fed. And that if uh, asset prices start falling, all those uh, leveraged operators are going to run into trouble. And then the Federal Reserve is going to have to, what's it going to do? It's going to come in and uh, try to rescue them again. So it's, just, it's this regime of perpetual indulgence towards uh, the financial markets. And they're afraid to let a... Uh, a bear market unfold uh, as it would have in the old days. So that that's a problem. I can understand from the Fed's point of view, we we'll do what they can to like keep things from imploding. Like, you know, we don't want to see 1929 to 33 all over again. All that sort of thing is true, but uh, they really haven't figured out how to uh, stop um, uh, these bubbles from expanding. And what's impressive about the current period is how many bubbles there are going. We've got the stock market, of course, but we've got housing in the US now is really, it's not quite 2006, but it's more like 2004. We're heading in that direction. And that that period from 2000, you know, the early 2000s, which peaked in 2005, 2006, um, was without any precedent in the US housing market. And now we're getting back to those kinds of levels. Again, we're not quite there, but we're getting close. That is all this nonsense with Bitcoin, also with like, Sneakers have become, you know, an, a, a tradable asset uh, in some markets. Um, it's That's just fascinating. That's it's just not a, something that that we've seen here. No, it's. I mean, everything. There's a speculative market in everything, and uh, oh, wow. I don't recall seeing anything like this. You know, even either personally or from what I've read about, it's just like, so many simultaneous bubbles going on. 
and I can't imagine how this is going to end, but it has to end badly. So that's, I think, that's the big worry in, in, in um, the the optimistic economic scenarios of what if we have a financial crisis after a, a year or so of of substantial economic recovery. Now, and we do, are, we, know, we are seeing substantial improvement in the labor market. The most recent employment report for March saw almost a gain of almost a million jobs. So we're certainly a long way from where we need to be. We're still eight or nine million jobs below where we were in February 2020, but still a substantial recovery from considering the deaths we hit uh, last spring. But if that recovery leads to higher interest rates and starts taking money out of the financial sector and putting them to the real sector, then some of these bubbles could start blowing up. And then I don't know what policymakers will do if that happens. Are they just going to fuel another bubble? Where does it end? You can't have a perpetual bubble. So it just um, this is this is the point where, you know, the, the sort of Austrian economists do have a point that you uh, credit fuel booms um, don't end yeah. well. And every time you try to uh, to end one with more credit and you're just making things worse. You're just evading your rendezvous with fate. But on the other hand, nobody wants that rendezvous with fate because it's going to be so unpleasant. So I don't know how they get out of this one. It's uh, they, They've created this model of uh, boom, bust, bailout, boom, bust, bailout. Uh, they just keep, they keep each, each successive iteration has more zeros after it and they just keep getting bigger and bigger. But uh, where does it end? It's really hard to tell. I mean, you mentioned that, that they can't, allow this bubble to carry on going forever. And yet that basically does seem like the strategy of not just the Fed, but you know, all the big four central banks. They're basically like, this bubble will have to go keep on going forever. I mean, if you just look at, for example, let's take one element of this, which was corporate debt in in the US before this crisis even hit. Lots of observers were talking about there being a bubble in, in corporate debt markets, particularly high yield corporate debt. So not particularly financially viable corporations that were borrowing on capital markets and paying relatively high amounts of money, although not historically high amounts of money to do so, and that they would be very vulnerable as soon as interest rates crept up. And here we are, you know, into this massive crisis, which if anything was going to affect the solvency of these businesses, this was going to be it. And yet, the crisis has been deferred again. Can this can this go on forever? <laughs> well, you want to say no uh, because it just doesn't seem like it can go on forever. But my God, they've been good. They, they've been had this model since when? Well, we started talking about the Greenspan, Greenspan put. put, isn't it? Yeah, that was after the 1987 stock yeah. market crash, and that was what 34 years ago. Uh, so we've been doing this boom bust bailout routine now for. Um, over three decades, and I don't know if they have a can figure out a way to exit it. Um, and if you look at the stock market alone, I mean, the, by any conventional valuation measures, it's at or near the highest valuation uh, since Robert Schiller's numbers began, like in eighteen seventy. Yeah. So we it's just you know if we compare the market cap to uh, GDP or you know, or underlying corporate profits or by any standard valuation measure, the stock market is at least as highly valued as it's been at any time in history and perhaps higher than ever, depending upon which measure you use. Uh, but and, and it just keeps rising. Um, it just doesn't seem logical that it can keep doing this. And the only consolation is I don't know how much of a real world effect it would have if the stock market had a normal bear market. Because most people are not in the stock market. Yeah, yeah. You could probably insulate the effects on on, on the real sector um, by, um, you know, targeted relief uh, on the fiscal side rather than um, – 
just you know flooding the system with money again. Um, but these guys have to take losses. You just, you know, it's funny how they, they moralize about uh, risk and the beauty of capitalism and that the, you know, the risk taker gets rewarded, but then the risk taker also has, you know, to lose a shirt now and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, they haven't lost a shirt in a long time. There have been a couple of, you know, small players who've, who've lost their shirts, but certainly not the, the big guys and certainly not the market as a whole. They need discipline. You know, they, 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 mm-hmm. they, they, the capitalist class in this country is just very, very spoiled. They've got the government, uh, you know, rescuing their ass anytime they get in trouble. Uh, they've really had very little in the way of, of labor militancy to contend with. They've had uh, nothing but support and uh, friendly noises coming from the political sector. So, you know, the capitalist class uh, has uh, just been living in a sweet dream for the last several decades. And, uh, you know, they could use a good uh, hit upside the head. And speaking of a hit upside the head for the capitalist class, how strong is the US left today? And how do you think that is likely to change over the course of of Biden's term? Obviously, he's you know done a lot of stuff that would have been on uh, on the agenda of uh, of you know various different socialist groups, the labor movement, etc. But there's a long way to go, and you know we're far away from something along the lines of a of a Green New Deal. So, where do you think the focus of the left? with everything from the DSA through to the labor movement, through to the climate and environmental movement, where do you think that should lie over the course of the next five years? Um, And also, I mean, I think, you know, one of the the biggest kind of criticisms I hear of institutions like the DSA and others is that there isn't this kind of organic link with the labor movement. I mean, often that is a, a big cultural divide between social movements and traditional kind of unions. But at least in the UK, you have some some kind of discussion across those boundaries because they're both connected in one way or another with the Labour Party, whereas that isn't really the case with with the Democrats. So how can we also how can you know US leftists think about linking these movements up a little bit more to, you know, get to that point where so yeah, you know, you're seeing this level of investment, you're seeing Biden make all these overtures towards uh, various different institutions on the left. How can they kind of take advantage of this moment to really push for some more kind of radical policies. I've been distressed to see some of my comrades on the left um, just criticizing Biden and the Democrats in a very unnuanced fashion. You know, just like mm. their sellouts, their failures. It's just a betrayal. No, I think we should say this is a good start, and we should you know claim it at least as a partial victory. The reason that a lot of these, you know, the infrastructure bill is happening, the uh, and and the rescue bill happened, was in part the result of the Sanders campaign and uh, the growth of the left within the Democratic Party, but also in state and local politics. And there, there's some real gains in the left, you know. And I've been, mm. I'm, I'm a pretty, um, you know, I'm pretty up there in years, and I've been through uh, <laughs> decades of politics, and you know, I haven't seen a left like this since late 1960s, early 1970s. Um, and wow, yeah. It's just, it's just. Like nothing. I mean, remember even 10 years ago, if you went to uh, any kind of left meeting, it was a fairly thinly attended sad affair. Uh, And that's just not the way things are now. I mean, I go to meetings with my DSA colleagues in uh, Brooklyn, and it's just such a lively group of really committed, sharp people. Um, uh, it just, it, I find it inspiring. I, I'm, I, you know, I love the younger members of DSA. I think they're just uh, mm. uh, make me feel like some hope for the future of humanity. 
so I think we, we, we should, you know, take uh, some pride in the fact that the, the left in the United States has, hasn't been this strong in decades. And certainly we're not almighty. A DSA of 100,000 members is not, you know, not exactly a mass movement, although it's having 100,000 people organized around an agenda is not insignificant. We shouldn't underestimate yeah. the power of that sort of thing. But, you know, obviously it's not, not like mass, mass movement in the millions yet, but it is definitely influencing public opinion. And some of the most promising stuff I see is happening at the state and local level. I mean, I'm just speaking from what I see in New York. We now have a socialist caucus in New York State Legislature. The New York State Legislature has yeah. historically been one of the grimmest, most depressing, corrupt, idiotic bodies you could imagine. And to have these lively, um, committed people in it uh, has really changed um, the, the nature of politics in the state. New York City, we're facing a city council election um, later this year. A lot of strong candidates um, and um, coming from the left. Uh, it's that, that all that stuff is just just great to see, and to have uh, you know some self-identified socialists or social democrats in Congress. It's been decades since we saw anything like that. So this is this is good. I think we should focus on um, by saying at the national level, some of these things are a good start. We have a lot more to do, especially on climate. <laughs> it's kind of funny to see you know a two trillion dollar rescue plan and a two trillion dollars or more um, infrastructure plan dismissed is just a down payment. But on the other hand, that's basically what they are. We have an awful lot of work to do, but we should acknowledge these are good starts and um, try to build on them because I think there's a great deal of popularity here, um, or at least potential popularity. And being a socialist in the United States 10, 15, 20 years ago, you felt like a freak. You would, uh, if you just, you know, described yourself as a socialist, you felt like you um, had um, outed yourself as some kind of strange creature that had been, you know, defrosted out of a glacier from prehistoric <laughs> times. And now, you know, it's not all that odd. And uh, just that, that feeling of going around and saying, yeah, I'm a socialist, and like people not thinking you're a weirdo um, is, is, is a great advance. And I think a lot of younger people may not be aware of just what it was like 10, 20, 30 years ago. And on that note, that positive note, we've uh, just come to, to time. So thanks so much, Doug, for coming on the show. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been great talking to you. Thanks. <laughs>